content warning, this episode contains mention of sexual assault and violence against women involved in the story of Apollo and the Sybil of Kume. Okay, welcome back to Seaweed Brain, a Percy Jackson podcast, everybody. We ran out of time last week with our Tyrant's Tomb conversation, so we are back with the same guests. Just to finish up this little section, we'll be covering chapters 10 through 13 of the Tyrant's Tomb. Time to talk about some terrifying stuff from Apollo's past. Get ready. It's going to be an intense one. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Before we dive in, this episode was recorded several weeks ago, but today as we are releasing it, it is Spotify Rap Day. So from Carter and I, we just want to say thank you so much for all of the support and amazing listening that y'all have been doing this year, every year since we started. And we want to give a shout out to Emery for the five-star rating, Brian Phillips for the five-star rating. The very thoughtful Apple podcast reviews from Solangelo, amazing username, Corbett Mama, Karen12346, Cat Crazy Sit. And Solangelo is the best. Y'all are the best. We would not still be doing this show if everybody wasn't so engaged and kind. And we look forward to all of the shenanigans in the future. All right, back to your regularly scheduled content. Welcome back to Seaweed Brain, our two guests from last time. It's Katie from the Damn Snack Bar. Hello. Hi. And we've got Rick here coming to us live (laughs) from Washington Heights. (laughs) Yeah, actually, no, Harlem. I misspoke. Close, though. I believe, Rick, you had a little PJO origin story that you yes. wanted to share with us that we didn't get to yes. last time. I know. I would be remiss as a fan of your podcast of, I'd say, two whole years if I did not tell you, like, my life story in regards to Percy Jackson. And I feel like you guys will really love my visual aids. Um, so... Props! <laughs> Props! Yes. Well, they're not... Uh, You'll see what they are. Um, So I don't know, like, when I started reading Percy Jackson. Like, I know I read the series, the first five books, by the time I was in sixth grade. And we were probably all reading them, like, around the same time. I know I was in sixth grade in 2009. And I only know that because that is the year that I broke my leg. And I was wheelchair bound for... Oh, no! For three months. That is also the same year that Percy Jackson, the movie, came out. Mm. That's my marker. That's how I know the timeline. I was in a wheelchair at this time. So (laughs) I don't know where they went. I don't know if they did this tour anywhere else in the United States, but the cast of the movie came to... What? My... (laughs) The cast... um, So the three main actors, so Logan Lerman, Alexander Daddario, and Brandon T. Jackson all came to my town's borders, which was a Barnes & Noble type bookstore that went bankrupt in the early 2000s. We had borders too. 
Okay, I was gonna ask. I didn't know. <laughs> Not explaining border. Your audience is like children. Please. I didn't know if they had them in Hawaii. We actually had a borders that was like in my local mall. Shout out to Windward Mall. It it, it closed though. Borders people over Barnes and Noble people. Borders was the best bookstore. It was literally incredible. I could spend hours there. It was so good. I miss Borders. Shout out to Borders. Rest Shout in out peace. to Borders. We miss you. Anyway, continue. Um. So. <laughs> Uh, the three main actors came to my local borders to do a book signing, and I was in a wheelchair, <laughs> um, which isn't funny, but it is kind of funny um, for me as a person. Um, so my two copies of the books that I have signed are my hardcover copies, which are The Sea of Monsters and... This is... Look at those yellowed pages. That's yep. so true. Oh, that is... I think that th this is Logan. Logan Lerman's signature is just it's two just swoopy elves. <laughs> and then this is... This is B, so I'm assuming Brandon. And then this is Alexandria. Um, and then my copy of The Last Olympian also. And those are my only two hardcover copies of these books. But... It is Get these, that page flipping ASMR. Yeah, I know. So <laughs> these are like my prized possessions, which is kind of sad as like a 25-year-old. <laughs> no. But also like anytime I like lend a friend like these books, I like have to like do a disclaimer. Like if you lose this book, I'll fucking kill myself and I'll take you down with me. <laughs> like there's no replacing. <laughs> Well, first of all, that year I was like really, really like high on painkillers like the entire year because I was of course. I, so like I just it was ter it was a terrible year. But I distinctly remember I <laughs> I think it was Alexandra asking me, like, are you okay? Because <laughs> I was in a relationship. Not, are you okay? Um and I don't remember anything else. I, I remember being so excited about the movie. Um this was before the film came out. So like we were like really, <laughs> really excited. No. <laughs> Yes. And then it was the worst year of your life. It was so bad. It just added to like the just trauma of sixth grade. Then I like never ever picked up another Percy Jackson. No, just kidding. Uh, but actually, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't read any of the other books. I knew that uh, Heroes of Olympus existed, but like we established in the last episode, I went to a performing arts high school that like did not allow me to be a person. So I like never read any of the Heroes of Olympus books. And then COVID happened and basically all my plans were like truly just shattered. Like I graduated college with a theater degree and it was just a mess. And so me and my sister started working on a farm, um, which I never would have done. Not the first person on Seaweed Brain who recently started working on a farm. Yes, let's go. <laughs> Demeter would be so proud. Maybe I'm a daughter of Demi. Anyway, um, but <laughs> let's let's think about temporary that later. existential crisis. But yeah, so I had a lot of free time, and I was like, okay, I feel like I need to do something. Like I I need to get back into reading. So I started reading Percy Jackson again, um, which was like probably the first like time I'd read a book for pleasure in like a really long time, like really long time. Um, and then once I finished the first five books, I was like, I know that there are more. I feel like I should probably read them. And yeah, I like finished Heroes of Olympus series in like a month period, I think. And then I was like, all right, well, I love this character, Nico, specifically. And I've heard that he's in The Tales of Apollo. He is not really featured at all in these books. No. But I wanted to mm -mm, see this. Not little, yet. I wanted to see this little gay boy. Um, I love him. I'm obsessed. He serves and works. I didn't really care for 
the Gerald's profile, but <laughs> I did I didn't finish them. Now I'm here. Oh, and then I started listening to the podcast when I came home from the farm because I was like, I need to like hear like people my age like talking about this because I can't just keep seeing takes from like children on Tumblr. Um, so yeah, <laughs> and Twitter. <laughs> but that's my life. <laughs> I wonder if there's people who like listen to our podcast and skip the like opening five minutes. I'm sure there are, but like I literally my favorite part about doing this is hearing everybody's little origin stories yeah. and when they first started reading the books and stuff because everybody has such specific sense memories you know about places like the borders or their grandparents house where they would read all the books like mm -hmm. it's so special oh i love sharing this space with you guys <laughs> yeah that's why i was like i have to say something i'm so incredibly jealous <laughs> so incredibly <laughs> jealous it, it's okay because the movie was terrible like if logan lerman was like I mean, he was the white boy of the month on Tumblr for, like, so many years. So, like, still even meeting him, I was like, whoa. Like, white boy of the decade. Yeah. Okay, Dylan O'Brien <laughs> says hi. And so does Andrew Garfield. Also, I just started Supernatural. So whatever those guys are, they're around, too. Oh. Um, I feel like the term would be, like, queer baiters. <gasps> okay, I only watched two episodes, so... That was, like, the show that invented the queer baiting. And then they, like, destroyed it all in, like the finale right i don't know i just realized i just found out there were 17 seasons and yeah. it only just ended yes very recently well thank you so much for sharing rick anytime may we all cherish the borders in our lives before they disappear because paper isn't a thing anymore guys just let's keep that in mind maybe go to a library i don't know um i work at a bookstore <laughs> but <laughs> endangered Let's dive in, shall we? All right. Would you like to summarize where we last left off, Carter? We last left off as Jason's funeral is beginning and Apollo is being called to take on a leadership role because Camp Jupiter is missing its religious authority figure, which, as you might remember, used to be uh, Octavian. Specifically, in the funeral proceedings, Lupa shows up. Lupa, who raised Jason as a small child for some not exactly specified number of years between being abandoned by his mother and arriving to become a child soldier with the Legion. Should, should we be doing a recap about Lupa a little bit? Um, Let's have a little chit chat about what we know about her because when she showed up, I was like, wait a second, is this the first time we've ever met her? And then I fact checked myself and yes, we have only ever encountered her through stories about her because when the son of Neptune opens, Percy has already been at the wolf house. So we've never really talked to her directly, at least in like a POV. And this is the first time she's being like actually characterized for us firsthand in this moment. She is in the Riot Inverse, an immortal goddess who raises every single member of Camp Jupiter at the wolf house, which is like somewhere in Northern California. She teaches them how to be like fighters and members of the pack, aka like good citizens for New Rome. Fascinating. She also supposedly eats the ones that like don't pass her training. <laughs> Which means that, like, every member of Camp Jupiter speaks and understands wolf language. <laughs> Whatever that That's means. That's fun for them. Like, members of Camp Half-Blood certainly don't speak satyr or centaur, so... Do they have their own languages? Is... I don't know. It seems like the centaurs just speak the same thing that the local people speak. Although I guess the satyrs also speak everything. Don't they say, like, multiple times in the first series that, like, Percy can understand Chiron's, like, whinnies? <gasps> because he understands horses. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> Percy also understands Wolf. <laughs> He's multilingual. Double threat. Triple threat. Yes. <laughs> Lupa's not really like a goddess in Roman mythology. She's known as like Lupa, 
Capitolina, Capitoline Wolf, because obviously we know that she is sort of famed for having found and raised the babies Romulus and Remus, who went on to mythologically found the city. Found? Well, one of them went on to found Rome. The other one went on to be killed by his brother. But um... there you go. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. But in the Ryan verse, she has been sort of like immortalized in a similar way, way to how Chiron has in that she's like exists forever to like train these heroes, except for the fact that Lupa is the goddess of wolves everywhere. And Chiron is not the god of centaurs everywhere. <laughs> importantly, Chiron was supposed to be a legendary trainer of heroes in Greek mythology, whereas Lupa, I feel like is more of Rick taking some creative liberties. Like, first of all, like, Lupa is not really a name. Lupa is literally just like the Latin word for a female wolf. But, you know, why not? It's fun. It's giving <laughs> us um, taking Miyazaki's interpretation of Roman mythology and, you know, feeding that back to us instead, which is better. <laughs> and also this interesting idea about what it means to be part of a pack and how New Rome is very focused on functioning within the community and the society and like playing your role and all of this stuff. Are you going to read this Fran message? Yeah, I got Fran from the Best Damn Camp podcast to send us a message because uh, she is our resident wolf girl. That's a <laughs> that's a gender inclusive term. She did write a book called Home to the Wild. You can buy it on Amazon. Um, it's about wolves. So you should buy it. It's super good. It's really good. I have my copy on my desk right here. Anyway, I asked Fran to send us a wolf message about <laughs> Lupa showing up. And this is what Fran said. Though she is a god, the fact that she sees the people of New Rome as her pack and still kind of leaves them because they need to be self-sufficient always rubs me the wrong way. I mean, it kind of goes back to that whole thing of how she says the weak will always die. When, as a wolf, yes, there are those who are weak who don't often survive, but they don't kill them. And it's also a devastating loss when a member of a pack dies. So it's cool that she's coming to help Apollo in this moment because it shows the nature of a wolf pack in that they are caring and want to help even if they are limited by the godly element of not interfering. But with her saying they need to do this on their own because they have to be strong is not pack mentality at all. Rick just does not seem to understand wolves. And as someone obsessed with them, it irritates me. End quote. Period. Thank you, Fran. Fran? Irritated by something Rick wrote? Oh, never. <laughs> <laughs> all I'm thinking right now is that meme that's like the person who says, on all levels except physical, I am a wolf. <laughs> Do y'all know what video I'm talking about? <laughs> wolves have had a big internet year this year. Shall we quote Demi Lovato? I've got two, two wolves, wolves inside, inside of, of me. me. <laughs> well, well, what is the well, I don't even know. I'm not going to try to do this. Did y'all go to the concert? The concert was amazing. Demi Lovato released an album that has, let's say, maybe eight really exciting, cool songs that are a delightful return to form. And also this song where the chorus ends with a power chord tonic over Demi Lovato going which wolf I feed in myself. <laughs> and basically, like, that's not even paraphrasing. Listen, one wolf howls while the other wolf sings. <laughs> one wolf soothes while the other one stings. <laughs> I don't co-sign Carter. I do think it is a no-skips album. And I love this song you, equally. You listen to the wolf song? I do. <laughs> I've got uh, two anyway, wolves let's, inside let's, of me. To, to return to Lupa, the reason why she's here is partially to serve as basically Jason Grace's only relative present at this funeral because we, again, can't get a hold of Talia. But also, she has some advice that she needs to impart onto Apollo. 
in order for him to, you know, be able to do what he has to do. She basically says, the time is coming for you to be Apollo again. So get ready. And what you're going to do after you find Tarquin's tomb and deal with this whole business with the soundless god, which we're about to embark on a quest to deal with, you are going to ask for help from an Olympian god to help you. Because quite literally, she tells him in wolf language that the pack, meaning the entirety of New Rome, has been decimated. They are depleted. Their numbers are not strong enough for them to win the upcoming battle. So they need to ask for help. And hopefully a god is going to answer, which is important because we know, first of all, communication between everybody is down. But second of all, Zeus told nobody, no gods to help or interfere with the whole Lester Papadopoulos situation. So Apollo is like, what do you mean the gods are going to come to my aid? There's some interesting lines about Apollo encountering Lupa. He notes that he is pretty freaked out by her. Like, for example, much more freaked out than he was communicating with the last she-goddess we met, which was Britomartis, the goddess of nets, who Apollo was not respecting. He says, quote, Even when I'd been a god myself, I'd never been able to get a good read on the wolf mother. She didn't hang out with the Olympians. She never came to the family Saturnalia dinners. Not once had she attended our monthly book group, even when we discussed dances with wolves. Stupid. <laughs> Do you think that he was like always afraid of her or is he like more afraid of her now because he's in a mortal body and she eats the mortals that don't play their role properly? Probably more. Probably more. Scared but So, yeah, I, I like this characterization that Apollo, maybe it's not that Apollo specific, but I like the idea that there are Olympians who are afraid of Lupo. Yes. It feels like it really adds texture to the world and it's also something that I would have assumed a priori. but. It's delightful to read. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what do you guys think about this characterization of Lupa that we get, of the wolf language, of her telling Apollo to ask for help, but also saying she specifically cannot provide help directly? I think it kind of works as, like, the character that we already know that she is from just, like, hearing about her. We never actually, like, meet her in the other books. I feel like it makes sense for her character here. I don't know if, as, like, an audience, we're supposed to be as afraid of her as... Apollo is in this moment because I felt more intimidated in the scene where he's like looking up at Zeus's statue and he uses the phrase like when your abuser is looking down at you or whatever like that's more intimidating to me than this scene was so I was kind of like oh like yeah it works but it felt more like a messenger rather than anything else yeah I don't really like feel like any type of way about Lupa because again we don't mm. we don't know her like yes this is not a wolf girl <laughs> <laughs> really more of like a cat girl more like a fox girl oh, cat girl what does the fox say oh. <laughs> i would like to know i believe air 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 sorry everyone i just got like really vivid flashbacks of like glee it was darren chris right? <laughs> yeah but yeah i don't like feel like any way about lupa because like yeah she is intimidating but also like we we haven't seen her like really like interact in this world before we just have heard about her and her coldness so like i don't necessarily think anything specific about her i do love that she is basically telling apollo to just like fix it himself like she does use the phrase be self-sufficient or die like she's not actually giving him any he really that he doesn't already that. know yeah it's more just like a can you like nut up a little bit please <laughs> yeah i don't know if it like fully makes sense in my brain the whole idea that apollo explains that lupa can't help because wolves aren't frontline fighters yeah what about the wolves in twilight when they 
I have zero things to contribute to that tangent. <laughs> I I will I will talk about it all day. I love Twilight. <laughs> oh my god, you weren't a Twilight girly. I was like a strong Twilight anti. Yeah. Were we not all on the same part of Tumblr <laughs> where you were educated as a 12-year-old that your mortal enemies were the people who appreciated Twilight? I specifically <laughs> spent money at Call It Borders on a Twilight parody book called Nightlight that was like a hundred pages. I literally bought that so that I could like read it and be like, yeah, Twilight kids are stupid. Mine sits proudly next to my first edition Twilight <laughs> 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 That I got from used bookstores. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. That's a good find. I respect you both. I'm currently listening to um, a Twilight podcast that's like hosted by the girl who played Alice in the in the movies, and it's actually really good. Oh, Ashley Green. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the podcast is really good. She's talking about how she had a crush on like all of the actors, <laughs> and I'm like, me. <laughs> Where was I? Oh, I was gonna add one more thing about Lupa. Apparently at one point, I think it was when she showed up in Jason's dreams when he had lost his memories. She's characterized as being like seven feet tall. Like she is taller than any human being. The way that this character is written, it is impossible, I personally feel like, to think of them as anything other than just a direct copy and paste of Moro from Princess, from Princess Mononoke. Mononoke. That is the only thought I'm able to have about this wolf at any point in time wait you're so right and that's an iconic reference i mean like but but it does mean that like i just ignore certain parts of the description <laughs> like when rick is like oh this is how the wolf communicates i'm like no actually lupa is voiced by a very famous japanese drag queen and that is, <laughs> that is what apollo is is listening to i do love that like rick's when he's like trying to make an intimidating character or like otherworldly character they're always seven feet tall like in Magnus Chase at the moment, I'm reading the second book and Hart's dad is seven feet tall. And when mm. they like go and meet all the giants, all the giants are seven feet tall. And I'm pretty sure in the first series, all the gods, when they're like at the mortals like level, at the demigods level, they're all seven feet tall. And I'm like, what's wrong with six feet? <laughs> like they just have to be like one. That makes sense No, though. he's right that makes though. Sense. Seven feet is exactly the right height to tower over like... Yeah reliably Every everybody and like look down and make eye contact but like you know down the nose eye contact yeah including men who are actually 511 <laughs> <laughs> i just saw a tiktok about that how you like ask a man and they'll say like i'm six feet and then they'll, they'll actually measure up to 511 i saw like one thing that was like if they say they're six foot they're telling the truth but if they say they're six foot one then they're under six foot <laughs> That's not true. Men lie about being six foot tall all the time. <laughs> One thing I know to be true is men are lying about being six feet tall. One thing I know to be true is that men are lying. Period. That's the gospel of fucking Megan Trainer. <laughs> not Daryl Sabara. Not her husband, Juni Cortez. Not you knowing the Megan Trainer lore. <laughs> I love Spy Kids. Anyway, after this riveting conversation with Lupa the She Wolf, Apollo notices throughout this book, in many different moments, this one being one of them, that Meg is maturing in some ways. He, like, will look at her and be like, huh, she looks older, or, like, she doesn't have glasses on, or, like, she's drinking coffee now. Little, little tidbits and little moments. Basically, Meg admonishes Apollo to go to bed because he is going to have to present a plan to the Roman Senate tomorrow about what they're going to do about Tarquin's tomb. I'm literally still thinking about Meg drinking coffee. We literally, like... We have failed the children. 
you know? 14-year-old bag drinking coffee, absolutely. That's adorable. We love a progression. 12-year-old bag drinking coffee, that's giving. We left a climate disaster behind for... um, for the next generation (laughs) and they were trying to fix it presently i remember very (laughs) distinctly that i started drinking coffee in eighth grade every single day exactly like that's reasonable that's someone pushing themselves to grow up yeah i was probably 12 or 13 but i remember not liking coffee until i was early 20s Hmm. um i'm a barista and i don't (laughs) i don't drink coffee like this (laughs) i didn't even drink coffee until i started working at starbucks which was like two years ago and is it really coffee if it's from starbucks it's not no it's not i can't watch those tiktoks where people are like let me make my starbucks coffee at home and you put like eight things in it Mm -hmm. makes me so mad shit's nasty anyway it's time for a flashback in the form of a dream to truly one of many horrific stories that Apollo has to tell about women. Just his exes in general. His exes in general, that's true. His, there's been rough patches with the exes. He does treat the women substantially worse. Shout out to Daphne. You might remember the whole book just being constant flashbacks about Daphne and how he feels so bad that she ran away from his, his sexual advances until she had to be turned into a tree. And that like was really hard for him. And here we have... Something that is maybe worse. The first taste of it, because we don't get the full thing until like one chapter later. But this is the first taste of the new Sybil for this book and the titular Sybil of the Sibylline books. We are getting in these flashbacks the story of not only Apollo's ex, kind of, but also the like lore behind these mysterious Sibylline books that we have been talking about since the Heroes of Olympus the ones that Ella is reconstructing. I did not, in my mind, make the connection between the Sibyls and the Sibylline books. You're like, that sounds so familiar. That's my bad. I should have expected that to all come to fruition here, especially with Apollo being the god of prophecy and whatnot. Especially with all of the work that Ella is doing right now on reconstructing them, we would be finding out about the backstory here. We we covered the whole, like, the Sibyl of Kume was the one who actually wrote the nine Sibylline books. Eh, quote unquote, historically, um, <laughs> historically in a loose sense, <laughs> true. And it, this flashback, we are getting the Sybil of Kume trying to sell her books to Emperor Tarquin. King. 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 Notably King Tarquin. She's like kind of like throwing them in the fire like one by one and like refusing to lower the price because knowledge is very valuable. And he being the king is not only the political leader. He's also like the religious leader of Rome at the time. So he's like, no, screw your sibling books. I am the high priest. I get to decide what is and isn't right as far as prophecies and rituals and stuff like that. And Rick is like pretty heavily critiquing lack of separation of religious power from political power here in this flashback. He, he's simultaneously making a critique about how Tarquin, who is, as you might remember, the titular tyrant of the tyrant's tomb. <laughs> We're we're getting a critique of his consolidation of power, but there's also this really cool, implicit statement about the limitations of power, and specifically the limitations of, like, named legal power, where he is in charge of everything here, but you can really watch the Sybil still fuck him up, you know, like, get up in his business and meaningfully, like, coerce him into doing something that he doesn't want to do, because... She knows what the pressure points are. She knows that what she has is valuable, but also she's doing all of this in front of the Senate, which although the Senate at this point does not have any meaningful legal mm-hmm. power, she she is still able to recognize and exploit the fact that these are still like the other powerful people in the city and that if they all decide that the king is doing something dumb, one way or another, they could put a stop to it. It's a very yeah. um, postmodern idea of what political authority actually looks like. 
And Tarquin feels that pressure from the people in like the Senate, also the guards and also the quote unquote enslaved women who are, you know, at his feet right now, that they are all on the side of the Sybil and not his side. So he's like, fine, we'll make this ridiculous payment um, for your sibling books and the ones that are left over, which is just like, is it just one that's left at three. that point? I think there's three. Three? Three that are left. Um, she's like, you can bring them to the Pomerian line, blah, blah, blah. And that's kind of the end of that flashback. And it's basically just Apollo feeling mysteriously bad about seeing the Sybil in this context. And we don't know yet for another chapter what exactly is going on with the Sybil. Um, so Apollo wakes up from this dream just in time to head to the Senate meeting. Lavinia is here, <laughs> asks Apollo about tea on her mom because her mom is the muse of dance, like we said, Terpsichore. And she's like, what's the tea on my mom, Apollo? Like, give me the hot goss. And Apollo's like, um, she has brown hair. And yeah, <laughs> Lavinia is very upset about that. Um, she wants more hot goss on her mom. Yada, yada. Her dad is a ballet dancer. She is a Jewish lesbian. Just like me. <laughs> Period. Let's go. Representation. Finally. There's a very interesting description of how her hair is pink, but also her eyebrows have been dyed pink and they're like slowly growing out. And Apollo was like, it looks like her eyebrows are going to like fly away from her face. <laughs> I thought that detail was very adorable. At this meeting, we're talking about the appending attack stuff that Apollo has gathered from his dreams. They're going to attack on the night of the blood moon. Tarquin's tomb is now here somewhere in Northern California, and Tarquin is somehow working with the emperors. How the Tarquin's tomb ended up here, Apollo says we really needed stricter mythological zoning laws. The sibling books are described as being like, quote, emergency recipes, which I thought was a useful way of characterizing them because they've been kind of mysterious up until this point. But they are full of rituals and things you can do in times of need. Like, for example, summon godly help from Mount Olympus. During yes. this meeting, Lavinia identifies the location of the tomb based on the prophecy. She's like, oh, yeah, it's underneath the uh, Tilden Park carousel. And she happens to know this because she knows where lots of things are <laughs> because she goes hiking a lot to see her girlfriend. And so they decide that they will venture out on a little quest to gather some intel. Hazel volunteers to lead the quest because she is a centurion um, and also because they're going to be underground and she has underground powers. Meg says that's only two and a half people because Lester's my servant and we're on a team and he shouldn't count as like a full human being. <laughs> we can legally take one more person to make it a full quest. So Meg, Apollo, Lavinia and Hazel are going to make up this little questing team. They have the rest of the day off after the meeting. So they go to the New Rome University Dome. They climb up onto the roof, which is Lavinia's special, like, thinking spot in New Rome. That she says is apparently her thinking spot, because why? Because she wants to look down on Raina. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, apparently it's higher up than Raina's thinking spot. That's powerful. That's my petty queen. That was really funny. <laughs> Honestly, good for her. I love the lengths at which she will go to, yeah, to feel powerful. There's also no way that Raina doesn't know that that's her superior thinking spot. Exactly. <laughs> and she was like, is it worth me? No, it's not worth it. Just let her have it. Like, She's a good leader. She's like, I need I need my, my girls to be feeling empowered. This is sort of nothing seen on the dome. <laughs> Strategizing, re-explaining some logistics. I think Rick does rightly feel that he left a little bit of loose ends when it came to Hazel's gemstone thing where, you know, the like descendant of Poseidon is supposed to wash away her curse or whatever. And we never really had a follow up conversation about what exactly that means. 
And you know, it is still kind of left ambiguous, but now he's addressed it. <laughs> yeah, but Meg inquires about Hazel's ability to summon these gemstones. And Hazel is like, mm, well, first of all, no, it's bad. But second of all, I'm not really cursed anymore because Frank is a descendant of Poseidon. I didn't need a fella to save me. But the explanation that Hazel feels to be possibly true in this moment is that it used to happen when she was anxious, right? Or like nervous or unsafe when all these gemstones would pop up. And now that she is loved and feels safe because she has this partner in her life, amongst other things, she is more in control of those powers and they don't just kind of like pop up everywhere. So question mark, perhaps the power of love and friendship has washed away this curse, which of course leads us to believe, what about Frank's curse? Has that also been washed away by the power of love and friendship? Yeah. What's going on with the firewood? Is it relevant anymore? Stay tuned. Stay, so true. Stay tuned. <laughs> I love that Hazel also like doubles down on the fact that you still shouldn't spend the riches that sometimes come up because of her being there. And I know if that's like just so that they can't have just like unexplained wealth. <laughs> yeah, like the gemstones themselves are still cursed. After this little lunchtime roof scene, it's time for Apollo to rest because he is still slowly turning into a zombie, lest we forget. He's a tired guy. And this is where we dive into the full backstory between Apollo and the Sybil. I, I was so disturbed by this. Based on the looks and the chuckles, I'm assuming we were all equally disturbed by this. But can I just get confirmation? Like, were we all very disturbed by reading this passage? Absolutely. I'm disturbed by Apollo in general. Yes. This scene just cemented me believing that he is an irredeemable character. I don't think that, like, regardless of whatever he has to do, go through his little trials as Lester. Like, I just don't think that anything can make up for yeah. his past crimes yeah. against humanity. Yeah. He's a war criminal. <laughs> and he should, be, he should be punished for longer, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there's a way in which one could look at the things that he's describing and be like that the story is in a lot of ways reflective of common experiences that people go through. What we have here is basically the retelling of a story of a boss who is a sexual harasser, I feel like more or yes, less. Exactly. But a like that is also if that were the entirety of it, then that would still be very uncomfortable to read and probably you would not want to deal with like a long book for children that is told from that perspective and b it does feel worse than that i mean like i guess it's like the godly power and the idea that we're supposed to be rooting for him and also the fact when he tells the story his narration is full of these like wow looking back on that i can see that that was bad what was mm -hmm. i thinking what could anyone possibly have been thinking and that i feel like is profoundly unsatisfying as a deity the idea that he represents is like more or less the same. Like there is some sort of continuity throughout the different historical versions of Apollo. It's really unsatisfying for him to not say like, this is what, this is what this means. What was going through and my I mind. Thought this, way. Yeah. this is what was going through my head. Not in any sense to justify it, but just, it doesn't work when he just says like, it makes no sense that this happened. I have no idea. I'm such a different person that like, I cannot fathom why someone would behave this way. Mm -hmm. If we're going to be in the head of someone who does terrible things, the value of that should be to actually engage with that and be like what what relationship to power exactly and i feel like the lack of that makes it really difficult to even if one were interested in the project of trying to redeem or recontextualize or reform apollo the fact that that is missing i think makes that really even more difficult to even think about because like is there motion is there a journey there's no there's 
certainly not anywhere that we can see in in this yeah. um, description. This whole memory wipe gives him this like blank slate thing that we think that because he is like a new person, people are inherently good and he would not do this nor understand his previous <laughs> actions. But we don't get we do miss him kind of blatantly saying here like, oh, I was doing this because I was hopped up on my power and I thought that this woman, amongst many other things, were owed to me. And therefore, it was in my right to behave however I wanted to or something mm -hmm. along those lines. So what happens if you need a refresher? This is really classic horror Rick. We have said many times that Rick is so good at writing scary things from the Oculus poison to the Arachne scene in The Mark of Athena to the entire character of Orion. Like Rick knows how to be scary and like really let the hammer drop. This scene is really freaky. As opposed to the earlier dream when the Sybil was kind of old and Apollo describes her as looking like Tarquin, you know, like evil, old, kind of crusty. This is like young, beautiful, very attractive Sybil. And Apollo is like, obviously, she would want to be with me romantically because not only am I her boss, but I'm like a hot god. And he says, you could be so much more than just my priestess. Why don't you marry me? But she's like, mm, no, like many times, verbally, no, all I want to do is be a Sybil and like help people. And Apollo's like, well, what if you like were a mortal and a goddess, then you could help more people forever. And she is like, ha ha ha, picks up a bunch of sand. If I lived a year for every single grain of sand in my hand here, then you can come back and, and check on me when I'm that old and see if you still want me. And he's like, okay, done. You're immortal now for as long as there are grains of sand here. And she's like, wait, what? And he's like, yeah, you have to honor your side of the bargain now. Like, you're going to marry me. And she's like, no, 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 no. What is going on? I just want literally quote, I just wanted to be your Sybil. And now you've made things weird. And he's mad at that. That makes him extra angry. So he says, OK, well, not only are you going to like live this many years, you're not going to be like hot and young you are going to wither and crumble and die until your consciousness is trapped in your ashes. So there. And she's like, okay, I would rather <laughs> wither and die and become ugly than be trapped in this like physical form that has caused you to behave like this towards me. She wants to be distanced from that like physical like desirability and stuff like that. Yeah. And that's pretty much the entire scene. So. Yeah. And that's our protagonist. And it's literally the narrator of this series. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard, y'all. I really, really, really hate this scene because it, it just reaffirms to like a lot of people that you'll be punished for saying no. Mm -hmm. Super big ick. We really do see her, hear her say no several times. And in different ways as well. Not just the word no, but like in like every way. It's also just like extra creepy too because like he is her boss, but he's also like her, a mentor of hers too. Like it's... Ugh, that's like what it makes it even like worse to like yes she's kind of an employee but also like she's supposed to be like learning from him he is the source of her power he is her spiritual guide it's, cra it's crazy the power dynamic is just not it's not it mm -hmm. the first thing i thought of when i read this scene for the first time was may castellan yeah luke's mother who as we remember wanted to become an oracle like of her own volition but because of the fact that she maybe, I guess, was a mother and not a maiden, it, like, did not work. And 
truly ruined her life. And ruined Luke's, kind of. See, but May's situation wasn't... That wasn't Apollo's fault, and I kind of got the impression that Apollo didn't know about the curse that was on the Oracle of Delphi. Like, that was a curse that Hades put on the Oracle. And so, like, Apollo walked into it. I don't Mm. think her being a mother had anything... Like, he was pretty happy for her to take Delphi's place, and it was just, Mm -hmm. like, a horror of circumstance, really, for May's. But then even knowing about Mm -hmm. the curse, the thing that makes Apollo still bad is that he encouraged Rachel to take the mantle when the curse was still, like, in place. Not great. Literally, is Rachel okay? Can somebody yeah. please check on Rachel Elizabeth Day? Oh my god, what's she doing? Isn't she in like a cave or something? Doesn't she like work out of a she's cave? She's in a cave. Yeah. <laughs> so no, she's not doing okay. She lives in a cave. <laughs> so basically, the civil's consciousness has been like trapped in a glass jar of dust since, question mark, the end of the Roman Empire? <sighs> that is terrifying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh Yeah, my second thought was that this is the scariest shit that has happened since Orion. The whole thing is just really, really giving off from Apollo. If I can't have you, no one can. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Even with just, like, her essence trapped in a jar, he really took away her ability to even be the Sybil. It was a weird choice he made. And present Apollo, as he is thinking about this, thinks again to the promise he made to Jason to remember to be human. The line he says is, quote, I promised you I'd remember to be human, but why did human shame have to hurt so much? So again, he's like trying to feel the guilt of his actions, but we are yet to see him right these wrongs. We'll have to read further. Any more thoughts? I know it's just like disturbing and very upsetting. Mm-hmm. I mean, this kind of thing that he's describing is very common within Greek mythology, <laughs> specifically mm-hmm. the gods doing terrible, terrible, vindictive things to mortals as an extension of the idea that they have control over every aspect of their lives, including their spirituality, their sexuality. It was really inevitable. Like You could not tell a story that is from the perspective of a Greek god that is like actually meaningfully engaging with the source material without having this type of reckoning in there. But I think we then run into the problem, which is that without like really an unprecedented redemption arc to go with this, the likes of which I personally feel like may not be possible. Impossible. And has certainly not ever been written, I feel. Like, you just can't, you can't put these two things together. Like, you Mm -hmm. can't have this person be the protagonist that you want us to root for. And also, like, an accurate reflection of the mythology that you're trying to to grapple with. Yeah, and so Rick using that whole, like, memory wipe and, like, I'm a different person now, I think was the smart, obviously the smart choice if he wanted Apollo to narrate these books. It also is, like, like you said, Carter, like, this is literally rampant throughout mythology, especially, like, who is the biggest perpetrator of this kind of thing is Zeus um, throughout all of mythology. So the fact that Zeus is the one that cursed Apollo to, like, learn these lessons, I think is a very interesting layer And I really appreciate how Apollo is starting to talk a lot about Jupiter being a bad dad and like looking at the statue of Jupiter and not feeling respect and like going through the motions of the ritual and not really feeling any sort of reverence or appreciation for the gods because those are the people that taught him how to act like this in the first place and set the example. And he's starting to feel like he is less a part of the Olympian pack and more a part of these like demigods and mortals. I was going to say, even with, like, the um, memory wipe, Apollo was 
practically unbearable for the first like two books. It wasn't until the Burning Mace that, you know, people started to hold him a bit more accountable for things. And so like, even with the memory wipe, I still, like, you can't take away those parts of his personality in order to like gain any kind of redemption. Like having so much mythology put into like each story and having a story like this and being like, well, that's what he's going back to. Like as soon as he becomes a God again. And in those moments where he like has access to his godly power, he becomes that person again. Like he's learned nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When, when you have a character that you introduce to the series as someone who like flirts with like a girl who's like just shy of 16 as oh, like an ancient curse. being. Yeah. It's difficult to make him a likable character. <laughs> Isn't the Sybil in this flashback scene only like 16 as well? 16, 17? We would have to assume so, just based on conceptions of what maidenhood would look like, probably, in the Roman kingdom. Well, well, the way that we pivot off of the Sibyl to something equally terrible <laughs> is to Reyna, because these are both women who have been cursed. So here is finally where we get like a like full fleshed out explanation of what the hell is going on between Apollo and Reyna. Because throughout the first, you know, whatever, 13 chapters, 12 chapters of the book, he has been, like, stealing glances at her and being like, no, I can't. Remember what Venus said and, like, oh, me and what will never be with Reyna. And literally, stay, <laughs> get a job. Stay away from her. Stay away from her. <laughs> Carter, do you want to summarize what happens back on Mount Olympus? We get a flashback where they're just, all, the gods are just milling about, chatting in the living room, whatever. Uh, and Venus is looking at an image of Reyna, and Apollo just walks by and asks, who is that? What's her deal? And Venus is like, shut up. Actually, you need to stay away from her. She's cursed. Parentheses implied, I, I, I have cursed her, like, because it is, it is also Venus's fault. But I feel like that's basically all, the, all of the backstory we get, that Apollo's just told, like, oh, there is one girl that you think is attractive that you cannot date, and that it would be bad if you did. And that has led him throughout the course of this book to constantly be staring at her. It sounds really obvious. Like, everyone else has commented about this. Everyone assumes that something is going on. He is making her life difficult. Well, even Frank Zhang noticed that there is something weird that Apollo is feeling towards right now. I feel like I would have preferred if he, like, didn't recognize her until, like, way later and just look at her like, I know you, but I can't tell where from. I feel like I would have preferred that instead of having this dropped, like, so early and have him, like, start to remember a little bit more as he goes, like, uh -huh. spends more time with her. And then it's like, oh, right. <laughs> Yeah, I will say that the payoff of this particular subplot in the book is so worth it, but the lead up to it is so very, very painful to read, <laughs> especially because what we were just talking about, it really is like he's learned nothing because in relation to the Sybil in this flashback, he talks about her, quote, infuriating, unattainable beauty, which is literally just the same thing that he's feeling towards Reyna, that because she is unattainable, that makes him want yeah. her more because he wants that like power over everybody else. Like he has the one thing that nobody else does. We always want what we cannot have. I became fascinated with her, like yada, yada. Stay away from her. Get a job. She's 16. She has things to do with her life. She's expressed no interest. I don't know. I, I did have to, as I was reading this, check myself and be like, how much of this is just discomfort with like reading like a man interested in a woman? Literally that. Which like, <laughs> that's also Literally present. That. I don't know if I've ever read a man be interested in a woman and not felt 
viscerally uncomfortable. Like Percy? that's ooh, like that's wrong. That's <laughs> bad. Like I don't wait. That's just, you're just you are going against the way of of God. Wait, even Percy saying that Annabeth's hair looks like a princess. <laughs> no, okay. Yeah. What did you just like, What like, did you just get... say about the podcast that you're on right now? Like you, you're a I have eighty two episodes of disagreeing with. <laughs> There's stuff. a very specific way that I think that it is possible to read these types of things and not feel viscerally uncomfortable. And I think that's a good point. That like it's not literally all men. And or boys, which I also think it does like, you know, the fact that Percy's like 12 for the beginning of it does also like really Yeah, help. that makes a difference. But Friends first. <laughs> Friends first. Friends first. You know, it, I, I guess this is to the point that like, no, there is something extra that is visceral that is going on it's here. It's the lack of respect. It's the lack of respect. It's the power. It's the fact that all of this superstructure is built up around not actually information about her as a person, but just residual pent up ideas he has based on seeing an image of her yeah it's gross it's frightening yeah, i think you're right the fact that every book up until now he's been shown or been dealing with a ex-lover who their relationship soured and now he's come across the girl he can't for many reasons and he's like i need someone i've been rejected twice by everyone <laughs> apollo's like your friend who like literally like cannot be alone like your friend who is consistently in a relationship they always end poorly and he truly cannot be alone and he really, really should be. Like, he desperately yeah. needs to find himself. Because that's himself. how he keeps defining his sense of self as opposed mm-hmm. to actually understanding. And anyway, he got cursed and now he's Lester, blah, blah, blah. He's repeating the same mistakes, blah, blah, blah. At least he's a little bit more aware of it because he hasn't, I guess, like, cursed Reyna to live forever <laughs> into dust yet. But <laughs> well, it's still time. Yeah. I guess, yeah, that's true. <laughs> because he's literally been stripped of all of his power, that was the only way to stop him from acting like this interesting lessons for us to keep in mind so apollo decides that he needs to go seek advice from the best well of advice that he knows which happens to be thank god give me the comic relief of the arrow of dodona (laughs) so we will get to that next time question i guess katie since you're on magnus chase right now i don't know if you've read nine from the nine yet but I have to assume that the Arrow of Dodona is communicating with Jack the Sword via the secret (laughs) underground weapons ring, right? (laughs) There's no way they don't cha-chat. They have a Discord. Wait, the secret underground weapons ring is actually just a Discord server. (laughs) (laughs) They do have a lot of the same humor. Yeah, I actually think that they would really get along. Yeah. In like a weird Percy Jason underwater bro way. But also in, like, the where some of the only talking weapons way. <laughs> like, we can communicate with each other. So true. Oh, God, I'm emotionally drained. Okay. <laughs> Thank you guys for being here with us to wrap up these couple of chapters. Will you let us know where we can find you on the socials, please, Katie? Yeah, you can come and find me on Instagram and Twitter uh, at DamsNightFatPod. I'm there, like, all the time. That's not true at all. I'm very lazy on Twitter. <laughs> Did you also have a TikTok? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> it's katie.demsnapcoppod. It's really fun. Woohoo. Follow, follow. And Rick, do you want the people to find you in places? Sure, why not? My Instagram is just like Rick. It's R-I-C underscore underscore Mo. Doesn't have anything to do with Percy Jackson or books. Sorry. But if you want to follow me or yell at me <laughs> about how much I like 
hey Jason and Taylor Swift and whoever else I said I didn't like on this podcast you can you can come DM me and you can tell me how you feel hate mail okay you know where to send that hate mail yeah all right <laughs> so stay tuned for next week you guys uh it's really it's up from here i promise the rest of this book <laughs> the plots pay off there's a big good laugh we're gonna get to some good stuff we're gonna get to some action sequences this was this was the darkest moment and we'll be back next time see you guys then see ya bye bye all